In Luke 16, verse 19, in Luke 16, verse 19, I've been doing some parables that are unique to the gospel of Luke, and this is one of those. This is the only place you find it is in the book of Luke. And this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which I'm sure that you've probably heard many times. But in Luke 16, 19 to 31, would you stand as we read God's word? There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And said Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They that have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity again to come into your house to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, I pray that the message that you've led me to this week might be your message and not mine. That I might be a clean vessel that you would minister through. Remove anything in my heart and life that ought not to be there. And may I be open and clean before you. May the Holy Spirit take the words and apply them to the hearts of individuals here. And may we understand the truth of your word. Once again, I pray for the ill, the infirm. I pray for our nation and the world that there might be revival, spiritual awakening and renewal. I pray, Father, for folks traveling today that they would be safe, you would watch over them. I pray for our government leaders that they might seek your face. And once again, Father, we pray for all of our emergency personnel, hospital, wherever they may be, that they would be safe and have the knowledge that they need and help them to minister to people who have need. We pray, Father, for the flooding and all of the situations that we have going on. Be with those that get involved in that and those that are helping them, Father. We pray for Ukraine and other parts of the world, Father, where your help is needed in such a a special way, guide and direct. Now bless us in this time together and forgive us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. One thing that I would like for you to keep in mind as we start this passage today, and that is verse 30. Verse 30 says, and he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Lock that into your computer, if you would. Put that in the back of your brain and put in there, repent, as we go through this message. 
If you really want to know the will of God, and I said this to you basically a week or two ago, if you really want to know the will of God, and if you want to know his word, then you have to camp in the scripture for a while. You cannot do a light or cursory reading of the word of God and expect to understand what God says and to grow in the faith. It takes time. You have to camp there. There's another thing that you need to think about as you're looking at the word of God, and that is, it is very easy, especially for critics of the Bible, to go through the Bible and pick out one verse or one passage here and says, look what this says. That can't be right or that can't be true. There are a couple of things that you need to realize, and that is, the Bible is the best commentary on itself that there is. There are a lot of good commentaries out there, but the best commentary is the Bible itself. And then if you're going to interpret the Bible, you have to interpret the Bible in light of itself. If you find a passage that says something you don't think or you don't understand, it does not mean that there's an error there. It doesn't mean something's wrong, but you need to look into that a little bit further and understand the context that it's in. Because the context that it's in determines the situation many times for us to understand. And so if you're going to really be a student of the Bible, you're going to have to spend some time in the Bible. Many people say, I would like to understand the Bible better. I would like to be a better Christian. I would like to be closer to the Lord. But they don't do anything to accomplish that. We're as close as we want to be. We know as much as we want to know. Because of the effort that we put into it. As we look at the scripture today, you understand that Jesus spoke in parables on several occasions of the word of God. It was his way to say of things that could have been, and they would relate to them, and they would understand it, and they would understand what he was saying. But Jesus did not use names in his parables. There was a certain man, there was a steward, there was whatever it was. But in this account, Jesus gives the name of a man. His name is Lazarus. Now, this is not the Lazarus that he raised from the dead. This is a different Lazarus. We're not even sure who he is. Doesn't make any difference. But Jesus named this man, which leads many people to believe that this is not a parable, but this is a true account of something that happened. The rich man is not named. I think you can understand why the rich man is not named. For one reason, for embarrassment for the family and everybody else, you would not want to name the man. But on the other hand, as you look at that, Jesus was not even going to give the honor of naming this man. This man had not trusted in God. He had not followed God. He was not a religious person. So why would you even give the honor of mentioning his name? Again, there are many people that believe that this is not a parable, and I believe it is not a parable myself. I don't think it makes a whole lot of difference because when Jesus gave parables, he gave a parable that was truthful. So it was not a fictitious thing. It was something that happened or could have happened. But Jesus spoke about real life and the parables that he gave. In this passage of Scripture, it's really important. Remember I said you don't pull something out of context? I just pulled verses 19 to 31 out of this chapter and took them out of context. But I'm going to put them back into context. 
Because in the context of the scripture, if you go back to the very beginning and see what was going on here, Jesus had been teaching them in parables. And as Jesus was teaching them, he gave them an account of an unjust steward. An unjust steward was one who had possession of his master's goods and wasted them and did not use them wisely. He got caught in what he was doing. When he got caught in what he was doing, the master said to him, I've caught you. You're not going to get by with this anymore. You're no longer going to be a steward. I'm taking your responsibility and your job away from you. The steward went out, and when he did, he went to several people who owed his master money and said, how much do you owe the master? And if they said 100 whatever, he'd say, Mark, get down to 50. He'd go to another one. How much do you owe the master? If they said 100, he'd say, Mark, it down to 80. He was going out and cutting the bill and cheating his master. The surprising thing is that Jesus commended this man. He commended him for his shrewdness and his ingenuity. Okay, a light reading of the Bible says, okay, Jesus says it's all right to be crooked. That's not the count of the passage at all. Jesus commended the man because he said people in this world are wiser than the people in the realm of religion. You see, this man knew he was losing his position of authority. He said, I can't beg. I can't dig. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to starve to death. So I know what I'll do. I'll make friends of all these people around me and they'll take care of me. Now, Jesus did not commend his manners at all. He did not commend his method. He commended his mentality. This man is smarter than many religious people because he realized that he was going to lose his position of authority and therefore in this life he was going to do everything he could to make a good life for himself. Folks, we're going to lose our position of authority. The day's coming when all of us are going to die or Jesus is going to come back. And we're going to lose everything we've got. If you've not prepared for your next position, you're in trouble. He said people in this life are smart enough to make friends of their own people to take care of them when many people in religious circles do not think and prepare for the future that's coming. He went on to say, if you're not faithful in the least of things, who's going to trust you with the eternal riches? You could simply say, if we're not going to take care of what God has given us here and love the things of God here, why would we go to heaven when we die and God reward us with those kind of things? No servant, he said, can serve two masters. That's all in the passage leading up to where we're at. And then he accused the Pharisees of justifying themselves before men. In verse 15, he said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. You see what Jesus is doing as he leads up to this parable, this story, whichever one you want to call it? You are they, he said, to the Pharisees around them who justify yourselves before men. And it's not men that you need to worry about. It is God that you need to think about. Because you're going to answer to God. 
what is esteemed highly by men is an abomination to God. That's quite a thought, isn't it? You see, you better make friends in this life, Jesus was saying, because this is the only life you're going to have if you're not born again. Because you're not going to have much of an afterlife. And then he said, the law and the prophets were preached until now. And many people are trying to press into the kingdom. In other words, people want to get in the kingdom of God. They want the benefits of the kingdom of God, but they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And he said, I'm telling you that not one tittle of the law is going to fail until earth passes away. And then he said a scripture also there that seems out of context. But what he was talking about was that we make up our own rules and regulations. The Bible teaches that divorce is acceptable under certain circumstances like adultery. But if you stop and look at the passage here, what was he saying to them? The Pharisees had developed their own line of thought. If your wife got older and wasn't as good looking as she used to be, you could divorce her. If she burned the breakfast, you could divorce her. If you were displeased with her, you could divorce her. So Jesus was alluding to that, the laws that they had made that they would just divorce for any reason. No, there were reasons in the scripture for divorce. But he was saying they were making up their own laws as they went along. Then he said in verse 16, the law and the prophets were preached until John. Since then the kingdom of God has come and people are pressing into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one tittle of the law to fail. And then he went on to say about the fact that of the story that we're having account for us today. Notice that he moved into that. And as he moved into that, you have this background of what's going on. So he's talking about a preparation for the future. Now look at verse 30 again and remember what it says. It said, if it's preached to them, they will repent. Here are the facts of this story. They're very simple. There is a rich man who dressed elaborately. He ate fine food every day. We are not told that Jesus criticized him for his good clothes. We're not told that Jesus criticized him for his food. We're not told that Jesus had anything against him for anything he had done. But we find that he had a very high opinion of himself. He wasn't even criticized for being rich. He may have even sent food out to Lazarus, which probably he didn't. Because it says that Lazarus looked for the food that fell from his table. He did not probably check on his welfare, but he let Lazarus be outside the gate of his house with sores and sick and hungry, looking for crumbs that fell from his table. He had no compassion. He used what he had. He used the good things, the food and the clothing, but he did not seem to care for anyone else. Now, the, the Lazarus that is outside of his gate was being fed or looking for the crumbs that fell from his table. That could be scraps that were given to the dogs. It could be something else. 
in reading about the history of that time, for the very rich, it was not uncommon for them to eat with their hands. And when they ate with their hands, when they got done, we have a napkin. They would use a piece of bread and they would take the piece of bread and wipe their hands with the bread and discard it. There's a good possibility that that is exactly what happened with the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I know that that's a fact even in some countries today because in the last church that I pastored, we had a family from Pakistan that was a member of our church. They invited us to a meal in their home. We went and ate typical food from Pakistan. She prepared it and served it to us. And when she served it to us, she served it with her hands. And we were to eat with our hands. She did because we were not accustomed, give us utensils that we could use. She was not mistreating us. In fact, she was paying honor to us by feeding us like one of the family. That's the way they did it. This is possibly this discarded food that was put aside. I don't know. Lazarus is out there laid full of sores. As he's laying there, the dogs licked his sores. That could mean one of two things. Dogs do have a mollifying effect sometimes within their licking. This could have helped ease the sores or it could have tormented them more. There is also a bacteria that can come that could get into those sores. So whatever that means, I don't know, but the dogs were licking his sore. It doesn't say they were eating. It doesn't say they were gnawing on him. It doesn't say they were eating away the flesh, but he was laying out there with only dogs looking after him, if you would. Now, the Bible tells us very simply then that the beggar died. There's no record of a funeral. There's no record of a service. We don't know what happened to his body. It just says he died. doesn't even say he was buried. Was he buried in a potter's field somewhere? Or was he placed in the valley of Gehenna around Jerusalem, the garbage dump of the city? We don't know. But one thing that we're told about him, that as he died, there was no fanfare apparently on earth, but he had some fantastic pallbearers. The angels came and took his spirit. His body went wherever they did with it, but the angels took his spirit. He went to be in the presence of God. We are told the rich man also died, and he was buried. We're not told elaborate things about that, but I'm sure that there was great fanfare and accolades. I'm sure that probably everybody who was somebody was there. I'm sure that whoever gave the eulogy or whatever they did during that day said what a great guy this guy was and how he cared for everybody and he had parties at his house and everybody came and they had a great time at those parties. I'm sure he had some pallbearers that were probably prominent people in the community that took him to his grave. But he ended up with his body in the grave. Then Jesus rolls back the curtain for us, and we see the afterlife. 
The Bible tells us the rich man was buried and in hell he lift up his eyes. Now this is the spirit. The body has been buried. The spirit has gone to hell. We also find out that he looks far off and he sees Lazarus. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was the Jews' description of the place of the righteous dead. If you remember from reading in John's chapter about the Last Supper, the Bible tells us that the beloved disciple that Jesus loved laid in his bosom. When they ate at special banquets, it was typical that they would lay on their side with their hand up on a pillow and they would lay with one person in front of them. The person who was in front of the other one was typically laying in their bosom. John was described as laying in his bosom. And so Lazarus, this poor beggar, is laying in the bosom of Father Abraham. This was a picture of Lazarus near to the heart of God. In hell, the rich man could see into Abraham's bosom. In hell, he could hear, he could feel, he could remember he was in torment. You notice that he did not request to leave. He didn't ask that he leave hell. Apparently he knew his fate was sealed and there was no chance of that. But he cried out to Father Abraham and said he needed mercy. Would you send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and touch it to my tongue? Because I am tormented in this flame. He was still pretty self-centered, wasn't he? The rich man had enjoyed a good life. Lazarus had had a miserable life. And now Lazarus is in comfort and in peace. The rich man is in pain. And he wants Lazarus to leave the place of comfort and go get some water and bring it to him. That's pretty self-centered and hard-hearted. When apparently he wouldn't walk out of his door to touch Lazarus in any way. He asked for mercy, but it was too late. Notice that when Abraham responded to him, he called him son. Apparently the rich man was a Jew. Apparently he was of the Jewish religion. Apparently he should have known. And even in this time of torment, even though he had rejected him, he still called him son. You see, when people are in hell, God still loves them. God has affection for them. He loves them dearly. Even in hell and under judgment, God loves us. He had the knowledge. He was a Jew, but he had not used it. Remember that as you look at this passage that Father Abraham says to him, Remember, son, remember. 
I think probably one of the most atrocious things about hell is going to be that you have a memory. Remember. Remember that on earth you had a good life. Remember Lazarus' miserable life. He is now comforted. You are tormented. But beside that, there's a great gulf out there. And you can't go from hell to heaven, and you can't go from heaven to hell. There is no crossing back and forth. Apparently, from what Jesus said in this account, people in hell can see into heaven. But people in heaven cannot see into hell. How atrocious it must be to look into a place of comfort and satisfaction and peace and not be a part of it. When the rich man could not get help for himself, then he said, I want you to help my brothers. I have five brothers and I want you to send Lazarus to tell them not to come to this place. Do you see again the self-centeredness? Send Lazarus from his place of comfort to go take care of my brothers. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. The rich man argued, they will not listen to them or believe the prophets and Moses. But if one of them went from the dead, they will repent. Remember that word I told you to remember? It has nothing to do with the riches of the rich man or the poverty of the poor man. What this man knew, and in the bottom line was, if his brothers were going to go to heaven, how did they get there? By repentance. He knew it, but he did not practice it. You see, one of the reasons probably Jesus gave the story the way he did, and I believe it to be a true story, so that would be why he gave it that way. But if it were to be a parable, in that society, the rich people were blessed, the Jews thought. And they deserved the very best. And poor people were cursed because they wouldn't be in that condition if they weren't cursed. And so therefore, in God's eyes, the rich man is high, the poor man is low, and Jesus turns the tables on him and says, that's not the way it is. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with poverty. It has everything to do with repentance. They have Abraham, or they have Moses and the prophets, Abraham said. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, now they won't listen to them. But if one went from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Example, Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. And how many people became permanently transformed in that society because of that? They explained it away, made up lies, and did all kinds of things. There are people today that say if God would just come and reveal himself in heaven, if he would just come down to earth, if he just hit us with a lightning bolt, no, it wouldn't change. Because we explain away everything. We have a reason for everything. If we don't want to believe, we won't believe. 
through my years of ministry and being in the secular field as well around people, I've heard all kinds of comments about hell. I don't mind going to hell, people will say, because all my friends are going to be there. We're going to have a party in hell. My friends will be there and we'll have a good time. Hell is not a place of party. Hell was really not even created for human beings. It was created for the devil and his angels. Hell is a place of torment. It's physical pain. It's thirst. It's knowledge. It's recognition of others. But I think the worst is that your fate is sealed. Can you imagine what it's like to be in a place that will never change? Never change. Hell is a place where people are in torment. The followers of God are in eternity, in perfect peace, contentment, and comfort, while those wicked are in pain. The rich man remembered his time on earth. He remembered his family. He remembered lots of things. Again, the unjust steward that we talked about earlier used his position because he was losing that position to be ready for the next position. And Jesus was saying not to be illegal and not to do things wrong, but that we need to use our time in life to be ready for the next life. God doesn't send anyone to hell. There are people every once in a while who say, oh, I can't believe in a God who would send anybody to hell. In fact, some people will say, my God would never send anybody to hell. And they're probably right. Their God wouldn't. Because their God is a figment of their imagination that they made up to be what they want him to be. God does not send anybody to hell. God has given the order whereby people will go to hell if they don't meet certain requirements. But if you go to hell, you're going to have to walk over the broken, bloody body of Jesus Christ that hung on a cross to give you eternal life. You have to ignore that. You see, God gives us the facts. He gives us a way of escape. He gives us his son that you might not go to hell, but you make the choice. It's up to you. Again, you would have to walk over the broken, bloody body of Jesus Christ. Let me quickly just share some words with you, and I'll bring it to an end here. Hell is translated various places in the Bible in various ways. And let me just say to this, you will find it in the Old Testament. Hell has been translated. It's the Hebrew Sheol. It really means the place of the dead there in that part of Scripture. It can be righteous and unrighteous, the place of the dead, like the grave. Hades in the New Testament is kind of like The word Sheol, it's the place of departed souls, but a place of punishment for departed spirits. But it's also translated hell. You have a place of paradise, which is a good place after you die. The departed spirits of mankind, like Abraham's bosom. But the word hell that we normally hear of is the place of eternal torment for Satan and his angels and the wicked, generally described as the lake of fire. Another word that's translated hell is Gehenna. 
It's been Greekicized, if you would, from Hebrew, the Valley of Hinnom, the garbage dump outside the south of Jerusalem. It's a place where animals' bodies were dumped, where garbage was dumped, and years ago where babies were offered to Molech in sacrifice. Josiah came along, desecrated that place so that even pagan gods would not use it again. But over and over again, Gehenna is used, translated hell, as the garbage dump, the place of fire and brimstone where the fire never dies, is there forever. And then there's a word, and you'll only find it once, and it's in 2 Peter 2.4, but it's translated hell, Tartaru. It's the Santa Tartarus. This is the only place it's described in the Bible, and it isn't even explained about human beings. It is explained about fallen angels. To cast down the fallen angels from Tartarus to Tartaru. A place supposedly lower than hell for the wicked angels reserved for times of judgment. There are people today who don't believe in hell. But Jesus did. You can only say one of two things about this passage. Either Jesus knew there wasn't a hell and he lied to us about it. Or he knew there was a hell and he told us. You can't have any other choice. And as you think of how he described hell here. When he talks about the punishment For the damned. We understand that there are some only few classifications of people. You're either saved or lost. You're alive in Christ or dead in sin. You're children of light or children of darkness. You are people who leave God out. Or God is forced to leave them out. The choice is to be made. It's not easy to preach about hell. It's nothing fun about it. But the truth has to be told. Suppose you go to a doctor and you have cancer. Do you want the doctor to tell you you have cancer or lie to you and tell you you don't? It's not fun to hear those words. But if something can be done, it's great. But what if the doctor would say to you, you have cancer. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to undergo surgery for you, and your cancer will be healed. They can't do that, but that's exactly what God did. You have a cancer of the soul, and I'm going to take the surgery for you. And he died on the cross in our place. One final example Let's say you have a family that lives next door to you and they have five kids. They are literally starving to death. They are malnourished. They have nothing. And you go over to that family and you say to them, I would like to give you some money for food. In fact, I'll go buy the groceries for you. I know your kids are sick. I'll take you to the doctor and I'll pay for the doctor bill. And if your kids or you have to go to the hospital, I'll pay every dime of the medical bills. I'll take care of it all. And they say, no, thank you. 
And you go back next week and you say, your kids are starving and you're starving. I'll give you the food. I'll pay everything for you. And they say, no, thank you. And eventually they die. And let's say that somebody comes up to you and says, you're the most terrible neighbor in the world. There's a family of five, two parents of seven next door to you that you let starve to death. And you let their medical bills go undone and you didn't do anything about it. You're the most terrible person in the world. Is that true? No, because they did everything they could, right? Jesus, day by day, says, please let me help you. Please let me save you. Please let me forgive you. I died for you. I came to give you eternal life. Here is what eternity looks like. You need to prepare for what comes next. If you choose not to accept him, that's not him sending you to hell. That's you making the decision to not go when the way is provided. God loves us. And Jesus loved us enough to tell us the truth and tell us he'd made the way. What are we going to do about it? Our musicians are going to come. We have a verse of invitation. You don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I'd invite you to come today and to trust him. You say, I don't really understand the word of God or whatever. I'd like to talk to you about that and pray with you. As a Christian, some of you need to make. You see, Jesus went all through that line of what he was doing with teaching. And he said that God's word stands. And then he gave the illustration of the rich man and Lazarus so that we could see, so that we could know. But the decision is ours. They each made their choice, but the bottom line is you must repent and trust Jesus. Would you stand as we sing?
Thank you for being here today. Let's pray for those that are not saved and let's remember to tell them about Jesus Christ. Service tonight, 5 o'clock for the business meeting, 6 o'clock Bible study. And let's remember those who are having tests this week and et cetera, praying for those that are ill. And remember the men's uh, breakfast is canceled for Saturday. So, Chet, would you dismiss us, please?